Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. So as you can see, the title of uh, discussion or study this evening is Jesus and the Trinity. And in looking at Jesus and the Trinity, I want to examine uh, this subject from, uh, from a particular angle that uh, maybe is not often uh, considered. Uh, we know that uh, it's through Jesus that everything in the scriptures was inspired. It's through his spirit. And uh, not only in the scriptures, we also believe that's the same for the spirit of prophecy. So we want to see today, what did Jesus teach on this particular topic? You know, a lot of people would place Jesus in the Trinity. Well, is that correct or not? Is that in the scriptures or not? You know, is, is this two different things or is this the same thing? This is what we want to explore, we want to discover today, because you will find that today there's a lot of talk and discussion about the Trinity. And even believing in, in the Trinity uh, causes people to read the scriptures in a certain way. Believing in any doctrine really causes us to read the scriptures in a certain way. But when it comes to our understanding of who God is, it is that much more important. So today we want to look at some basic, simple foundations as to what Jesus has to do with the Trinity. And in looking at that, I want to define what uh, the Trinity is, because that's very important. A lot of people define the Trinity in all kinds of different ways today. I want to look at this definition, which uh, is uh, coming up. Here we go. Uh, and this is the definition of the Trinity, okay? The Trinity is that there is one God, and this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal Persons. This is the, the definition, the common definition understanding of the Trinity, that the Trinity is one God that is made up of three persons. All three persons make up the one God. Okay, that's, that's clear. That's what it says there. So this is what we want to uh, explore together. This is, this is what we want to see, what Jesus says about this. So we'll do some uh, examination in the scriptures. And uh, I'll be asking a number of questions today, and our questions are going to be quite pointed so that we can get a pointed, clear answer, hopefully. Uh, did Jesus teach that eternal life is to know a trinity? Our first question. Okay, now if I, if I was to ask you this question, what would the answer be? The answer is no. And John 17, 3 is probably what comes to mind. Uh, I'm pressing the wrong buttons here, sorry. Okay, here we go. John 17, 3. Jesus says, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast... Saint, according to Christ, eternal life is based on knowing how many? According to this verse, two. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's not a trinity. That is the Father and the Son. So that's what uh, Christ told very, very plainly, uh, plainly. So what about Jesus teaching about God? Did Jesus teach that God is a trinity? In other words, that God is made up of three persons making up the one God. And in Mark 12, 29, we have an answer. It says, And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He said that God is only one. The Lord our God is one Lord. Not three, not a trinity, but only one. Now, the reason I'm asking these pointed questions is we need to be clear about this issue because, brothers and sisters, as you might know, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of debate about this issue today. As a matter of fact, this is a precursor to the great issue of debate and contest in the last days, which is the issue of worship. Who will you worship? And that's why we're asking these questions to see clearly what the scripture has to say about that. 
Well, did Jesus teach that the God of the Jews is a trinity? He just said that the Lord our God is one Lord. And in John 8 and verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. And here Christ was, of course, speaking to the Jews. He's saying, your God, you claim to worship God, the true God. That's my Father. I'm telling you that I am his Son. So in other words, when Jesus taught that the Lord our God is one Lord, who was he referring to? To God, the Father. That's from his own lips. That's from his own teachings. That's what he taught when he was here on earth. Well, what about the teaching about himself? Did Jesus teach that he was part of a trinity when he was here on earth? And uh, we can read about it in John 10, 36. It says here, say of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. So who would God be according to this verse? The Father. So only one person, right? Because remember, the Trinity teaching says that God is composed or made up of three persons. So according to Jesus, God is the Father, and He is the Son of that God. And of course, we know in John 3.16, it tells us that He's the only begotten Son. And of course, a little later in the in the book of John, Jesus says that my Father is greater than I. These verses help us to understand how Christ viewed Himself and what He taught about Himself. That He was the begotten Son. He was the Son of God. Now, the word begotten, I was talking to someone earlier. The word begotten, a lot of people, you know, sometimes get a bit confused as to what the word means. If you look it up in the, in the concordance and the lexicon, it's, it's very simple. It's, it simply means to be born. Only begotten means only born. And Christ says that he's the only born, only begotten of the Father, of God. He's the Son of God. And uh, <clears throat> not only that, but what about the Holy Spirit? Did Jesus teach that the Holy Spirit is part of a trinity? And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. People say, well, hold on, you know, now, now the Holy Spirit and, and all this talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, what did Jesus teach about the Holy Spirit? The most commonly used passage to prove, that people use, to prove that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity, is in John 14. So we want to read it together and see what was Jesus trying to teach in this passage. Was he teaching that the Holy Spirit is part of a Trinity? John 14, I'm reading from verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be... In you. And this is what people say. See, there you go. Jesus said it is another comforter. And that's the third person of the Godhead, right? That's the third member of the Trinity. Because Jesus said another comforter. Obviously, people conclude, obviously, he was talking about someone else. Well, is this really what Jesus was trying to say? Is this what Jesus was trying to teach? And the answer is very simple and clear. If we actually read the passage itself, it explains itself. Like I said earlier, the problem that a lot of people face, and we all have that, is we read the scriptures with a coloring of whatever beliefs we already have. And so a person who believes in the Trinity will, will read something like that and say, see, there you go, that proves the Trinity, a belief that they already have. But if we can 
lose that a little bit and just see what the passage is actually saying in its own context it explains itself who is this other comforter and what did the disciples that Jesus was speaking to what did they understand when he told them about this other comforter these are very important questions to ask in order to arrive at the right meaning of the passage of course in, in right there in verse 17 it says at the, at the bottom it says he dwelleth with you and shall be in you so that gives us a clue but let's keep going and in verse 18 of the same passage, the next verse, Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So according to Christ, this other comforter is who? Himself. He says, look, this other comforter is coming. I will come to you. He was referring actually to himself. And someone said, hold on, brother. This is a little bit far-fetched, you know. How can another comforter be referring to himself? That doesn't make any sense. Well, Jesus referred to himself as another person many times. As a matter of fact, you remember one time after his resurrection, he, was, uh, he met the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and he spoke about himself as if he was someone else. And he told them about all the prophecies about the Messiah. They didn't know who he was until they arrived at their destination. You remember that? And when Jesus spoke about uh, his second coming, he spoke about, uh, he said it this way, when the Son of Man cometh in the clouds, when he cometh, he's speaking about himself as if it was someone else. It was actually a normal mode of speech. And the disciples understood that Christ was referring to himself. Because uh, the, the very next verse tells us that in verse uh, 22, just going down and seeing how the disciples understood what Christ said. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Now notice here, this is a question of how, correct? It is not a question of who. They did not have any confusion as to who was coming. Correct? They're puzzled, they were puzzled about how that was going to be accomplished. Now, who did they understand was coming? Because it says here, thou, right? It says, how is it that thou, how will you accomplish this how is it that you will do this how will you come to us where we will see you but the world will not see you so the disciples who were standing there understood that Christ was referring to himself when he was talking about the spirit as the other comforter that's what the context of the passage is so I think the answer is very clear Jesus did not teach that the Holy Spirit was part of a trinity and the reason why I wanted to deal with this verse is, is like I said this is the the first go-to verse when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, people really like to use the other comforter without taking into account how the people who heard the words of Christ understood it. You see, we understand the words of Christ today very differently to how those who are standing there understood it. We need to come into harmony, into line with that. And in John 14, 23, Jesus answers that question of how. That will happen. He answers Judas. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We will come. The father and the son will come and make their abode with us, with the believer, with the disciples, and with anyone who believes. And of course, they do that through the agency of this spirit or this comforter that Christ came. You see, the reason, another reason why Jesus said another comforter is when he was returning, he was not going to return in exactly the same way that he was with the disciples. He was going to return and dwell with them on the inside. He was actually going to dwell in them. That's why he told them, 
He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. It was another way that Christ was going to be with his people. This time, he's not going to be next to them or walking with them. He's going to be in them. That's why he said, it's another comforter. I will come to you. And in coming to you, it's really my father and I who will come and make our abode with you. That's how he answered the question to the disciples. Now, it makes a very interesting, you know, difference when we have a correct understanding of the spirit and an incorrect one on the practical level, as we shall see in a little while, hopefully, uh, as, as our study progresses and develops. Uh, let's look at our next question. <clears throat> what about other people who were inspired by the same spirit? Did others teach that the Holy Spirit is part of a trinity? The Apostle Paul is a good example. He wrote most of the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now who is the Lord? It says here, the Lord is that spirit. But when, when the scripture talks about the Lord, you know, uh, Mary, when, when uh, she couldn't find the body of Jesus, says, they have taken away my Lord. That's Christ, right? Uh, the Lord is Christ. So Paul is telling us simply here, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is that spirit. And where that spirit is, there is liberty. Only Christ, brothers and sisters, can bring liberty. That's that spirit. The Holy Spirit is none other than Christ, according to Paul. So he wasn't trying to teach or even imply in any way that the Holy Spirit is part of a trinity. What about the Father? Did the father declare that his son is a part of a trinity? The answer is, the reason why, every single question we're going to ask tonight has the word trinity in it, okay? Because we're doing an examination on Jesus and the, and the trinity. That's why we're asking pointed questions. And we want to be really clear in what we're saying. Of course, you remember at the baptism, Matthew 3.17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was the God of heaven, the God of the Bible who was speaking and declaring his relationship to this man, Christ, to his son, saying, this is my beloved son. And we saw earlier that the Bible also refers to him as the only begotten son. The father did that, spoke those words from heaven twice, this time in the baptism and another time at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? It says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God says that, Christ is his son, his only begotten son. Not a co-equal, co-eternal member with him in a trinity. And anyway, as, as we go, hopefully that will, that will develop a little bit. But uh, the questions I'm asking, I also want to keep us in mind. Uh, in mind. The questions I'm asking, we're looking at uh, important figures here. Christ declared the Father declared, the Apostle Paul declared. We're looking at the declarations of the Scripture, and we're going to see others as we go along. And uh, the scope that we will cover is, 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 uh, is quite large by the end of it. Hopefully we'll see. But we're, we're going to notice a very consistent chain of truth developing when it comes to this particular question so that we have no reason to be confused about it. Uh, our next question is, does the devil and his angels believe in a trinity? Oh, well, that, that's an interesting one. Uh, well, what's the answer? Answer should be an obvious. No, because the devil used to be in heaven. He knows what's going on up there. He's seen it with his own eyes. And the Bible actually tells us that in James uh, chapter 2 and verse 19 it says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and 
trembled. The devil believes there's only one God. And who is the one God? It is the Father. You know, the devil does not believe in the Trinity. Even Satan doesn't believe it. He made it up to deceive you and me. He knows what the truth is. That there's only one God. Not only that, but in Matthew, uh, Mark sorry, 3, 11, it says, an uh, unclean spirits, when they saw him, that is Christ, they fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. They know there's only one God, and they know that he has a son, and that Christ is his son. And when the word God is used here, remember, the, the definition of the Trinity that we read says that God is made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But how God is used here, it's referring only to one person. It's referring to the Father, and Christ is his son. Now, you might be thinking and saying, well, yeah, well, we all know that. That's so simple and basic. But brothers and sisters, not everybody knows that. There are a lot of people, a lot of people who are deceived on this very question that we're dealing with here. And they, they are deceived by this devil and his angels who have come up with this idea that is contrary to the truth. You know, it's quite shocking. I was telling someone uh, one time and, and, you know, they were telling me the Trinity and so on. I told them, brother, you know, even Satan doesn't believe in the Trinity. Why would you believe in it? Satan knows the truth. And I took him to this verse. It's interesting to see what the enemy really believes in his heart. That's what the contest and battle is between right? Christ and Satan. Both sides know what the real truth is. Who is our fellowship with? Is our fellowship with a trinity? There's a scripture song, beautiful scripture song. I think it's in this book. And it's based on 1 John 1, 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. How many is that? Two individuals, two beings, two persons. That's who we have fellowship with. That's what Christ told Judas. He says, if a man love me, my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And so this is who our fellowship is. What about baptism? Are we baptized into a trinity? That's what all people believe, right? And, and the verse that's quoted is Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of? The Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Well, there you go, brother. I don't know what you're going on about. There is the Trinity, someone might say. And when we're baptized, we're baptized in the Trinity. It says three. It doesn't say two. See, it's the Trinity. Now, we need to keep in mind, this verse comes at the end of the life of Christ, right? He was about to leave his disciples. He was about to go to heaven. What was Christ's teaching about who the Father was? We saw already, right? That the Father is... The only true God. He is the one God. What was Christ teaching about himself as the Son? That he's the only begotten Son. What was Christ teaching about the Holy Ghost? That he is the other comforter. Which is himself returning in spirit. Because the Bible says the Lord is that spirit. So you can't isolate this teaching or this verse. You can't isolate that from the teachings of Christ. What he taught on earth. And use that verse to totally nullify what he taught. We have to be consistent. And when we're baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. That's not a trinity. That is the only true God, His begotten Son, and the connection that they have with us through the Spirit. Let's look at another verse that hopefully uh, clarifies that a little bit. In Acts 2.38, another baptism verse. 
It says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. So these people who were on the day of Pentecost convicted in their heart, they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, not into a trinity. In other words, what Jesus said when he spoke about baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he wasn't giving a formula. He wasn't giving, you know, some magic words to recite over the person who's getting baptized and then something will happen. It was to understand that through baptism, you're going to enter into a connection with God. That connection is through His Son. And when that connection is established, you receive this gift called the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of the Father and the Son in your life. That's how Christ dwells in you. That's what baptism signifies. It has absolutely nothing to do with a trinity, because we saw that wasn't in the teachings of Christ. And so, what about this gift of the Holy Spirit? Does the gift of the Holy Spirit come from a trinity? And in Galatians 4, 6, we're told, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's, this, that's the gift of the Spirit that we receive. It is the Spirit of the Son. Now, the word Spirit in the Scriptures is synonymous with life. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. That's spirit. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, when we receive the spirit of the Son, we are receiving the life of the Son. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I don't need to ask you if the life of the Son is a different person to Him. That doesn't make it. Nobody believes that. Your life is not a different person to you. The life of the Son is not a different person to Him. It's His very own person. That's what the Bible refers to when it talks about the Spirit. It's how we are connected with heaven right now. This is the other comforter. It's the Spirit, the life of the Son. And so to summarize what we found so far, you know, uh, when we confess our faith, is the confession of faith about a trinity? Uh, I don't know if that's... Can you see that? It's not too small. Okay, the, the Father declared, this is my beloved Son. Satan challenged that in the wilderness. If thou art the Son of God. Uh, Peter and Nathaniel and the, all the other apostles, they declared the Christ was the Son of the living God. Those who rejected him, represented by Caiaphas, he said, tell us whether thou be the Son of God. And when Christ said, I am, or thou hast said the truth, he says, he hath spoken blasphemy. Uh, the eunuch, of course, after Philip preached to him, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And uh, Oh, sorry, let's read that first. And those who were at the cross, who were mocking Christ, what words did they use to mock him? If thou be the Son of God. They were echoing whose words? The words of Satan. It tells you who was inspiring them, right? It also tells you what problem Satan has. He has a problem with the fact that Christ is the Son of God. He keeps speaking on that. Because in his very heart, he knows that that's the truth. Paul, the Apostle Paul, of course, as soon as he was converted, he preached that Christ is the Son of God. Before his conversion as Saul, he, said, he refers to himself before as a blasphemer. What do you think his blasphemy was? If the first thing that he started preaching after his conversion, that Christ is the Son of God, and he says, before that I was a blasphemer, 
In other words, it has to do with what he believed about the Son of God. He denied that Christ was the Son, just like everyone on this side. As a matter of fact, he says that he would chase people and arrest people and cause them to blaspheme, to try and deny the Son. And of course, the centurion at the cross, he was convicted. He said, this man was the Son of God. And on the other side, we have the exact opposite, the Antichrist. And the Bible says he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. In 1 John 2.22, I don't have the reference there. It is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. It is to deny the truth of who the Father is, that he is a real Father. To deny the truth of who the Son is, that he is truly a begotten Son. And this is just in summary. Do we confess the Trinity? 1 John 4.15 Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Well, someone say, well, you know... That's what the Trinity teaches. You know, a lot of people believe in the Trinity. They say, yes, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, they say that, but not in the way that the Bible describes, brothers and sisters. They don't believe that Christ was begotten of the Father. They don't believe that God is the Father, that the God of the Bible is the Father, but that God is made up of these three. And the Son of God is simply a term or a title for Christ, but not a reality, not a factual living reality. And so, just saying the right words is not really what God is interested in. You know, one time there were a group of people who saw Paul casting out devils, and they went and tried to cast out devils, and they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. They used the right word, Jesus, correct? But did it work? They got beaten up. That's what happened. You can read the story in the book of Acts. The words that we say have to have meaning. We can't just use the right words while denying the true meaning that the Scripture gives to us. I want to spend some time as well uh, in this section looking at some of the spirit of prophecy because we refer to the spirit of prophecy as what? The testimony of who? Testimony of Jesus, right? Which is the spirit of prophecy. The book of Revelation tells us that. And I want to examine this because usually when we present this case uh, from the scriptures, people say, yes, brother, look, all this is good. It makes sense. But Mrs. White says, you familiar with that? And they usually go to... to uh, you know, a quote or two that they like, that, that they believe teaches the Trinity. They say, but see here, you know, uh, Ellen White told the Trinity, as if she contradicts the Bible. That's impossible, right? So we want to look at what the testimony of uh, Jesus says through the spirit of prophecy. And, uh, you know, when we talk about inspiration, who inspired the servant of the Lord, Ellen White? God inspired her, of course. It is called the testimony of Jesus. And it's the spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the agent of inspiration. And that Holy Spirit, which is the agent of inspiration, is referred to as the testimony of who? Of Jesus. That tells you who is speaking when the Spirit is inspiring people. It is Jesus speaking, not someone else, not an ambassador, not a representative. It's he himself speaking. And I want to review the definition that we looked at earlier of the Trinity. So just so we can keep it fresh in our mind and examine as we go along, is this teaching present in the Spirit of Prophecy, in the testimony of Jesus? That there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a unity of three co-eternal persons. Now, uh, it's important to keep in mind that when looking at spirit prophecy, we can't just take one statement or, or a few statements that we like, what they seem to say, and just use those. We have to look at everything else. So tonight I want to look at statements that people don't generally quote or use in this context when it comes to this particular topic. Like I said, usually we, we have our favorite statements that we think are so clear. And what happens is we camp on those statements, right? 
We drive our stakes. We build our tent on those. We, we camp there. That's it. Not moving anywhere. As if that is all there is to say about the topic. So I'm going to challenge that a little bit and look at some other statements from the Spirit of Prophecy when it comes to that. Because we have to look at everything that is said. And we're going to ask some, the same line of questioning. Is God the Father, the unchangeable one, part of a trinity? And the book of Zara of Ages, it tells us, in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. So according to this statement, it says here that the Father is the great source of of all. There's only one great source of all in the universe. That is God, God the Father. And it's actually whose life that flows through the Son, according to this statement. It says here, the Father's life flows out to all, because He is the great source of all. He's the source of life for the whole universe. So we don't have three sources, we have only one source. And uh, <clears throat> in Testimonies, Volume 5, we're told, we can understand, same question, we can understand as much of his purposes as it is for our good to know. And beyond this, we must still trust the might of the omnipotent, the love and wisdom of the Father and sovereign of, of all. So we have how many sovereign of all? One or three. Depends what you believe, right? But this statement says one. The Father is the sovereign of all. I just want to challenge our thinking a little bit. Now, if you happen to believe in the Trinity, the purpose of this study is not to offend you, okay? It's just to look at the evidence and see what does the evidence declare. Is this a teaching that is supported by Christ through what he preached on earth and through the testimony of Jesus or not? Because we cannot risk being vague about this question, brothers and sisters, because this is the issue of contest in the last days. So let's keep going. What about Christ? The begotten Son. Is he part of a trinity according to Spirit Prophecy? <clears throat> In the same book, Zara of Ages, it says, All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. All things Christ received from? From God, from the Father, from the great source of all. Now I'll ask you a question, and we already answered it. Does that include life as well? Did Christ receive life from the Father? Yeah, well, what kind of life did you receive from the Father? Okay, original, there's a statement in the same book that a lot of people like to use. Huh? Original, unborn, underived life that exists in Christ. And they use that statement to indicate that Christ has this life, he never got it from anyone. But here we're told that all things Christ received from God, including life, which we saw earlier, the Father's life, or the Father's original, unborn, underived life, flows through the Son. That's how he has it. Because he's the begotten Son, he inherited that life. And that's from the book Desire of Ages. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people will say that it's the book Desire of Ages that turned everything around in the church when it comes to the Trinity. And uh, the facts actually say a different story. Let's keep going. That's not the only statement. God is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of God. To Christ has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with the Father. All the counsels of God are opened to His Son. Now, there's no Trinitarian that believes that. That Christ has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with the Father. Yes, because he was begotten and he inherited that. 
He received that from the great source of all, the sovereign of all, as we just read. What about uh, another? Well, let's, there's another statement. Same question. Was Christ part of a trinity? Christ the Word. Uh, this is from Great Controversy. I think most of us have read that book. Christ the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the eternal Father, one in nature, in character, and in purpose. The only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. There is no other being in the whole universe that can enter into the counsels of God. Right? The Trinity doesn't teach that. Trinity teaches, oh, hold on a minute, there's someone else. But this one says there is no one else. So you can't use the spirit prophecy to teach that there's someone else who enters there. It tells you there is no one. Of course, this someone else is believed to be God the Spirit, another person besides the Father and Christ. And you know, some people to try and, and, and deal with this statement have come up with all kinds of creative and, and, and strange ideas. You know, ideas like some people, I've, I've read this in a book, and they said, look, just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean it's not there. You heard about that one? Now, I, I was really surprised, you know, that uh, in essence they're saying absence of proof is not proof of absence. Just because it's not there. In other words, it's there. We're just not told about it. Well, you know, with that type of reasoning, you could really prove anything you want, right? Because you just don't need any evidence for it. Because you can just say, well, just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean it's not there. Well, where do we find evidence that tells us that it is there? That's what we need. We need to base our faith on evidence. We can't just base our faith on the absence of evidence and call that evidence. That doesn't make any sense. And so when it says here, the only being in all the universe, it means just what it says. It's not trying to give us, you know, a, a mysterious secret code language that there might be someone else. And if you're in the know, you just know what's behind that. Brothers and sisters, it is that belief that leads us to read statements in that way. Because we want to hold on to a belief that is not supported by evidence. So I want to challenge how we think about things and how we arrive at some of our conclusions. What about Lucifer when he was in heaven? Did a trinity have foreknowledge about the apostasy of Lucifer? Well, we're told clearly in the same book, Zara of Ages. From the beginning, God and Christ knew of the apostasy of Satan and of the fall of man through the deceptive power of the apostate. How many knew? The father and? The Son, not a trinity. doesn't say that there. And there's nowhere else that you will ever find that it would even uh, hint at such a thing. Well, you do have a oh, yeah, we'll come to that. <laughs> what about salvation? Did a trinity unite in the covenant of redemption? Was that plan of salvation because of... Uh, an agreement or a meeting among the Trinity. Well, let's read what it says. Same book again. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. Who decided that? The Father and the Son. That's two, right? One, two. Not a Trinity. And that's from the same book that Zara of Ages. A lot of people believe with a lot of sincerity that this book really promoted the Trinity and turned the whole church around. That is not the case. What about this question? Before his fall, did Lucifer believe in a Trinity? We know on earth he doesn't. James told us he only believes in one God. What about before his fall? Do we have any indication as to what he believed in? 
Lucifer in heaven, this is from Story of Redemption. Lucifer in heaven, before his rebellion, was a high and exalted angel, next in honor to God's dear son. Not only that, but it also tells us in Sons of the Times, before his fall, he was a glorious being, occupying a position next to Christ in the heavenly courts. I want you to think about this for a minute. It's not that hard, but let's just think about it. There is the Father, the great source of all, and there is his son. And then who's next in line? Lucifer. In other words, he's the third highest being, correct? And we're told that the councils include the Father and the Son alone, and no one else is included in these councils. The next in line, the next being in line, in, in honor, according to this one, and next to Christ is Lucifer. Of course, he's a created angel. He, he cannot enter into the councils of, of divinity, of, of, uh, of God and his Son. And of course, he had a problem with that. So Lucifer knew, he could see, he could hear, he could know who was in those councils. It was only the father and the son. He did not believe in any trinity whatsoever. And uh, again, we're told here, we actually wanted something. In all the councils of God, Christ was a participant, while Lucifer was not permitted thus to enter into the divine purposes. Why, questioned this mighty angel, should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he thus honored above Lucifer? So it was Lucifer who wanted the councils of heaven to have how many members? Three. Correct? That's what it says here. And they only have two, the Father and the Son. He wanted it to be three. So he knows what the truth is. And that's why, brothers and sisters, today he has created a theology and a deception that teaches people that in that inner sanctum where God in people's minds dwell, dwells, where God is, they have room for how many? For three. And the belief is that God is composed or made up of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. All these three persons make up the one God. That's Lucifer's dream come true. He tried to do it by force in heaven. He failed. He succeeded through deception in doing it in people's minds today. Here's another one, Zara of Ages. Satan well knew the position that Christ had held in heaven as the beloved of the Father. He knew that this was the begotten Son. He was well aware of that. So he did not believe in any trinity. As a matter of fact, here's another question. Did Lucifer worship a trinity in heaven? Obviously not. If he didn't believe in it, it also tells us who he worshipped. This is in Spirit Prophecy Volume 1. The hour of joyful, happy songs of praise to God and His dear Son had come. Satan had led the heavenly choir. He had raised the first note. Then all the angelic hosts united with him, and glorious strains of music had resounded through heaven in honor of God and His dear Son. Does not get any clearer, does it? Lucifer in heaven led the choir in worshiping God and His Son. They did not worship a trinity. And uh, that's not the only one. Here's another one, Patriarchs and Prophets. The influence of the holy angels seemed for a time to carry him, that is Lucifer, with them. As songs of praise ascended in melodious strains, swelled by thousands of glad voices, the spirit of evil seemed vanquished. Unutterable love thrilled his entire being. His soul went out in harmony with the sinless worshippers, in love to the Father and the Son. This is before he fell. Now, I'm using a lot of statements, I realize, that, that a lot of them seem to be saying the same thing. And the reason I'm doing that is on purpose, is there is an abundance of evidence when it comes to this question, brothers and sisters. There isn't only just a few statements that we just have to camp on and ignore the rest. There's a lot of information. 
And when we ask questions like this, all of a sudden it really puts the emphasis on, well, how come people believe in three? That's, that's hopefully a question that's going in your mind. When we have so much evidence that even Satan in heaven before his fall, of course. What about the good angels? Well, of course, they worshipped with him. So they also believe the same thing. But here's another statement. Did they believe in a trinity? By Christ, the Father wrote in the creation of all heavenly beings. And to Christ, equally with the Father, all heaven gave allegiance. What book is that? Great Controversy. So all heaven gave allegiance to who? To a trinity? No, to the Father and the Son. I want to tell you something, my sisters. This is how sinless, holy beings worship in heaven. This is who they worship. Our worship on earth needs to match what's happening in heaven. Isn't that what we pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will is that we worship in spirit and in truth. We can't have worship here this way and then angels in heaven worship something else or someone else. And expect to be at the same place and stand on the same sea of glass and all unite in worship together. There is a very serious contradiction here that we need to examine. Did the good angels believe in a trinity? Here is another one. The Son of God had wrote the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven. And to him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance were due. You know, all these statements are relevant and important statements when it comes to the question of the Godhead and the Trinity and what Mrs. White says. It's not just the heavenly trio and the third person of the Godhead and all these statements that people like to use. These are also important statements. And she explains all these other ones. I'm not dealing with that right now. We deal with that somewhere else. But I'm just looking at the weight of evidence as far as these questions are concerned. Did, did Lucifer in heaven war against a Trinity? Here is what this one says. Satan, the first apostate, looked upon the fruit of his apostasy in the vast army under his banner. And his mind was made to comprehend the meaning of warfare against God and his son. He was making war against God and his son. After all, he was the next in line. He was the third highest being. He was not making war against a trinity. Now, someone suggested the, the, the novel notion. I read this in a book once, and I, I just didn't know what to do with that reasoning. I'll share it with you, see what you think of it. Uh, they said basically this. Lucifer did not know about the existence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. That, that, that's in print. Have, have, you, have you heard that? I, I was shocked. You know, do we have to come up with such bizarre theories just to defend a theory, you know, a belief that we hold dear. Lucifer did not know about a third being. So what, God lied to him and, and led him to believe that he was the third when really there was a secret third one. Did you see what was, this, this becomes ridiculous, brothers and sisters. God does not want us to, to uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? He doesn't want us to just uh, come up with stuff, you know, without any evidence. This is really out of harmony with the scriptures. And the problem is people believe things like that. Why should we when we have such clear evidence given to us? Let's not make God a liar. He wasn't deceiving Lucifer in any way, shape, or form. Review and Herald. Once Satan was in cooperation with God, Jesus Christ, and the holy angels, he was highly exalted in heaven and was radiant in light and glory that came to him from the Father and the Son. But he became disloyal and lost his high and holy position as covering cherub. He became the antagonist of God 
and apostate and was excluded from heaven. This is how things were before he fell or, you know, during that whole contest. He wasn't warring with a trinity whatsoever. He wasn't murmuring against a trinity either. Memory recalls the home of his innocence and purity, the peace and content that were his until he indulged in murmuring against God and envy of Christ. That's what the problem was in heaven. And the, the fact that there is so much written about this particular point is to indicate something to us. The problem that Lucifer had in heaven was with the position of Christ. And in rebelling against that, he was rebelling against God. And he made war with God, with Christ in particular. But he, he warred against God's government because of his hatred of Christ. And we see that in the wilderness of temptation, when the first question he asked Christ was, if you are the Son of God. That's, that's what he hates the most. And anytime you promote the truth about the Son of God, you will get the hatred of Satan as well. He hates that. You get the opposition that comes from the heart of Lucifer. He hates the truth about the only begotten son. As we'll see. Well, there's, there's more. We're not finished quite yet. What about the fallen angels? Well, they were in his army. Did they believe in a trinity? Same book here again, Story of Redemption. Many of Lucifer's sympathizers were inclined to heed the counsel of the loyal angels and repent of their dissatisfaction and be again received to the confidence of the father and his dear son. They wanted to return they almost returned because of the influence of the good angels to loyalty to the Father and the Son. They did not believe in a trinity. They did not worship a trinity. They were not rebelling against a trinity. Here is another one about the fallen angels. This fact, the fallen angels would obscure that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And they came to consider that they were not to consult Christ. They wanted to obscure this fact. And the fact is that Christ was the begotten Son of God. They wanted to hide it somehow. Now, when we talk about Christ being the Son, uh, the Son of God, when we talk about Christ being, excuse me, uh, about Him being the begotten Son of God, and Someone will say, well, you guys saying begotten? Well, that means created. You heard that? You guys are saying Christ is created. That's what the angels, the fallen angels wanted to do. You see, the fallen angels were created. Christ was the begotten son. The two words don't mean the same thing. That is, uh, that is extremely, extremely uh, contrary to the scripture and the evidence that we have. Begotten is to be born. He came out of the Father, as he says in the scriptures. And the angels wanted to obscure that fact. And one way that they obscure it is by claiming that maybe he's created or that he's playing a role or that uh, his sonship is only a title or anything other than the fact that he is the begotten son. It is a teaching of Satan to suggest that Christ is a created being because that would equate him with Lucifer, with Satan. And so it's the interest of Satan to promote that. So you can't read the Bible and say, well, begotten means created. That's what God says. Not what we're saying. And that's what the angels are keen to destroy. So just to keep that in mind, because that's a very common uh, aspect. A lot of people get worried and say, oh, it's saying begotten means created. I'll clarify that to you now, everyone. And those who are watching, begotten does not mean created. Look it up in the dictionary. And the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus, actually tells us that he is a son begotten, not a son by creation. So there is a, a divine distinction there. In the meaning. So we need to keep these 
aspects in mind. We can't just you know, go by what someone might say without checking things for ourselves. Here's another one. Never, never can we afford to place confidence in human greatness as some have done. Looking to man as the angels in heaven look to the rebellious Lucifer and losing the sense of the presence of Christ and God. So the holy angels, Lucifer and the fallen angels, they all know very well who God is, who his son is. They don't believe in a trinity whatsoever. And there is more of the same. Testimonies, volume 3. Did they turn from a trinity? Satan in his rebellion took a third part of the angels. They turned from the father and from his son and united with the instigator of rebellion. Very plain. Now, I know someone, uh, because when we hold to something, you know, some, for some people it's hard to let go. Someone will say, but look, you know, just because the spirit is not mentioned doesn't mean it's not there. That's why I'm, I'm putting quote after quote after quote. It's not mentioned anywhere. So what do we do? You can't use that reasoning. Let's accept what is written rather than try and read into what's not written. That's not how God operates with us. Did a trinity expel Lucifer from heaven? Obviously not. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man, sorry, in the act of Christ dying for the salvation of man, heaven was not only made accessible to man, but God and his son were justified before all heaven in dealing with, with the rebellion of Satan and in his expulsion. The father and the son. They are justified in dealing with Satan and in his expulsion. <clears throat> what about when it comes to this earth? Because some people say, well, yeah, we don't have that much information about heaven and, and the war in heaven. The focus was just Lucifer and Christ. That's why not everything's mentioned. That's what people say. Well, let's keep going. What about the work of creation? What about this earth? Was a trinity involved in the work of creation? That's something to do with earth now. God should be really open and transparent and forthright. If he was hiding something from Lucifer, he should reveal it now. He wasn't. But I'm just following that reasoning a little bit. You know what I mean? Let's read what it says. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1. The Father and the Son engaged in the mighty wondrous work they had contemplated of creating the world. Well, of course. They are the ones who meet together. Only Christ enters into the council of God. And therefore, creation is... Uh, is their work, the Father and the Son. It's only attributed to the Father and the Son. Uh, Signs of the Times. The Father consulted Jesus in regard to at once carrying out their purpose to make man to inhabit the earth. The Father spoke to the Son. And part of speaking to him when they decided to make man, he told him, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And when they created man, how many did they create? Two, because the original is how many? Two, right? You can't have an original of three and create two and have a likeness. Right? That's what a lot of people believe. That's not a likeness. In other words, God, God, you know, miscounted. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of the Father and the Son. Two and two. That matches. That's how it was always in heaven. After the earth was created, here's another one, uh, and the beasts upon it. The Father and the Son carried out their purpose, which was designed before the fall of Satan, to make man in their own image. They had wrought together in the creation of the earth and every living thing upon it. Time and again. So, I mean, almost after a while, it gets a bit tedious. Like, okay, brother, we get the point. But do we really get the point? Brothers and sisters, there's many people who, I don't know, either ignore these statements or are not aware of them, and they just hold on to that belief because of these few statements that they think support the Trinity. 
That's why I want to present uh, a heavy weight of evidence. Hopefully it'll be so heavy that it will burden people to look at it for themselves and, and really examine it and see what do they believe? Why do they believe what they believe? What about on the Sabbath? The first Sabbath of creation, did a trinity rest on the Sabbath? Zarvages, in the beginning, the Father and the Son had rested upon the Sabbath after the work of creation. You know, this, you know, these statements don't get quoted when we talk about the Godhead. The Father and the Son. So the Sabbath points to who then? The Father and the Son, not to a trinity. The true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is this rest of entering into His finished work. It is what eternal life is all about. The Sabbath is a symbol of that. Okay, uh, what about Adam and Eve? Did Adam and Eve worship a trinity in the garden? The holy pair united with them, that's with the angels, and raised their voices in harmony, in harmonious songs of love, praise, and adoration to the Father and His dear Son for the tokens of love which surrounded them. Here's Adam and Eve in the garden. And they worship and praise the Father and the, and the Son. That makes perfect sense because that's the same thing that the angels worship and they're worshiping together here. And we should worship the same way, you know. It was sin that caused all this confusion. And Satan came up with all kinds of confusing ideas about God and who he really is. The angels united with them in holy strains of harmonious music. And as their songs pealed forth from blissful Eden, Satan heard their joyful adoration of the Father and the Son. Wow. Even Satan here is reminded of that which he lost in heaven. Worship to the Father and to the Son. What about on earth? Did Satan attempt to defy the authority of a trinity on earth? Well, of course it wasn't in heaven. And again, it tells us the same information on earth. Now, the way seemed open for Satan to establish an independent kingdom and to defy the authority of God and his Son. That's what Satan is doing on earth. And he defies their authority by creating confusion about who they really are. And somehow, some way, inserting himself among them by whatever name might be used. You see, brothers and sisters, any worship outside of the Father and the Son is claimed by who? By the being who once worshipped, by Lucifer. Now, this is a very serious statement. I realize that. I want to say it again. Any worship outside the Father and the Son is claimed by Lucifer, when we give our worship to someone who is not the Father and someone who is not the Son, to someone else, then what are we doing? The Scripture nowhere teaches that. It only teaches that we are to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. That eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. That our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And we're seeing here all through history, the history of this controversy, the whole issue is between Lucifer and the Father and the Son. So let us be very, very careful when it comes to worship. Who we worship. Satan cast off his feelings of despair and weakness, and as their leader fortified himself to brave out the matter and to do all in his power to defy the authority of God and his Son. That's the same thing over and over again. Was the Trinity dishonored when mankind fell? Well, here is Adam. He falls for the tactics of Satan, Adam and Eve. And it tells us here, But in the transgression of man, both the Father and the Son were... Dishonored. It wasn't a trinity that was dishonored. It was the Father and the Son. Both of them. Yes, and both means two. Thank you, exactly. Both can only mean two. 
not three. What about now? Is Satan now warring against a trinity? Every lying device is put into operation to misrepresent the Father and to dispute the authority of his only begotten Son. Satan casts a hellish shadow before the world to hide God and the world's Redeemer from sight, so that if they were viewed at all, it might be through the mists and fogs of superstition, tradition, and error, and not in truth. This is a very important statement. To a large degree, he has been successful in doing that. He's trying to hide the true identity of God and uh, the dispute the authority of his only begotten son. And today what most people have is the father and the son and that there is someone else in between to bring us to the father and the son. Someone who is not the father, who is not the son. Someone called God the Holy Spirit. And that has become such an entrenched tradition that when you speak out against it, people think you're speaking some strange language, or maybe you're teaching some strange teaching, or maybe it's a heresy. Or people start saying, oh, hold on, you guys are saying there's no Holy Spirit? And they want to turn and run the other way. Well, if you've been listening at all tonight, nobody's saying there's no Holy Spirit. But there is a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit, and there is a right biblical understanding. We saw in the Bible that the Spirit, the Bible told us, the, the Lord is that Spirit. It is Christ, not someone else. It's the presence of the Father and the Son. Satan has created this error, and he has inserted it as an established tradition, where we now view God not in truth, but in mists and shrouds of mystery. And if you talk about it too much, you know, or emphasize it, people say, whoa, 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 brother, look, this is a mystery. Let's just leave it alone, and, and when we get to heaven, we'll find out. But they still insist on believing in the Trinity. Well, if it's a mystery, then it means you, you don't know what it is. So, so the Bible tells us. So let's, let's not put God in a dark cloud. He has revealed himself to us. What he hasn't revealed, of course, is a mystery. But let's not call what he has revealed a mystery. He who can, here's another one. He, there's so much, and this is a sample, okay? <laughs> So we're doing a lot of reading tonight, but there is a reason. He who could influence the angels of God against their supreme ruler and against his son, their loved commander, and enlist their sympathy with him for himself, was capable of any deception. Four thousand years he had been warring against the government of God and had lost none of his skill or power to tempt and deceive. It's all against the Father and the Son. Four thousand years, up till today. He hasn't changed. And part of his warfare against the Father and the Son is the doctrine of the Trinity. You realize that? You realize that the doctrine of the Trinity is a weapon in Satan's arsenal against the Father and the Son? In other words, am, am, I, am I like hinting that it might be a satanic doctrine? No, I'm not hinting. I'm saying it plainly. It is. It definitely is. Make no mistake about it. It is non-biblical. It is out of harmony with inspiration. It destroys the personality of God in Christ. It totally warps the picture that God is trying to paint for us. I know these are serious words, okay? But that's a lot of statements. This is a lot of evidence to deal with. We can't just ignore all of that. Uh, oh, there's more. Again and again, we shall be called to meet the influence of men who are studying sciences of, his, of satanic origin, through which Satan is working to make a non-entity of God and of Christ. Well, here it is right there. One of the ways that Satan does that is through the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, I don't have all the time to go into the details of that. You can watch another study about that. But this is why we're saying it is a deception of the enemy. Because the enemy knows what the truth is. He used to be in heaven. Do God's people praise and honor a trinity? Obviously not. Because heaven worships the right way. We should worship just heaven does, as heaven does. All the heavenly angels are at the service of the humble, believing people of God. And as the Lord's army of workers here below sing their songs of praise, the choir above join with them in thanksgiving, ascribing praise to God and to His Son. I want to ask you a question. If you worship a trinity, will the choir in heaven join with you? They don't worship that in heaven. But that's what most Christians worship today. That's what most Believers, that's what most Adventists worship today. This worship is out of sync with the worshipers in heaven. They can't join in that worship. That's a very serious problem. That's a very serious thought to contemplate too, because everybody who sincerely worships believes that their worship is honoring God and then the angels would be happy to join. Angels don't sing songs of praise to any trinities, brothers and sisters. They don't worship trinities in heaven. Let us... Uh, let us honor God and His Son, Jesus Christ, through whom He communicates with the world. That's who we are to honor. God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Is knowing a trinity the sum and substance of the whole gospel? Well, we're told the sum and substance of the whole matter of Christian grace and experience is comprised in believing on Christ. In knowing God and His Son, whom He hath sent. But here is where many fail, for they lack faith in God. Here's the whole sum of the gospel and grace and what the whole thing is about. It's believing in Christ. It is knowing the Father and the Son. That's what eternal life is all about. It is not about knowing a trinity. Who is the God of the Bible? Is it a trinity? We already saw from the scriptures from the Lord Jesus Christ himself who the God of the Bible is. He told us the only true God that is his Father. He told the Jews whom you say that he is your God. That's my Father. But from a spirit of prophecy, and I find this statement really interesting because it is so plain, it is so clear. No one uses it. No one comes near it. I don't hear it when people talk about the Trinity and all that. And yet it spells out who the God of the Bible is. It says, we rejoice that the God of creation is the God of the Bible. And that we can claim this infinite being as our Father. How many people is she talking about? One. The God of the Bible, brothers and sisters, is one person. Not two persons, not three persons. It is one person. It is the being that we call our Father. The same being that Christ refers to as His Father. That's why He said, when I ascend, I'm going to my God and to your God, to my Father and your Father. That is the God of creation. That is the God of the whole universe. Not three persons. We talked of the glory of of the glories of his power and wisdom and adored the matchless love, which has made it possible through Jesus Christ for fallen man to become a son and heir of the maker and sovereign of the universe. Hallelujah. That's where Jesus says, that's my father and your father. He is your father too, if you believe on me, adopted into the family of God. Well, what about loving mankind? Does the Trinity love mankind? Oh, our time is running. We're almost there. We're still awake? Everyone awake? You want to check on your neighbor? Your brother's keeper and sister's keeper? Okay, we're almost there. We're just uh, 
closing. Does a Trinity love man? God and Jesus, his beloved son, must be presented before the people in the wealth of the love they have evidenced for man. The Father loves us and the Son loves us. That's who designed the plan of redemption. That's who was involved in creation. That's who eternal life is known. That's all these things that we found. It's just a theme that goes through the entire thread of the testimony of Jesus. Did the Trinity pay an infinite price to redeem man? The human family cost God, excuse me, cost God and his son Jesus Christ an infinite price. God and his son Jesus Christ, they paid for the redemption of humanity. Then why should we give the credit to someone else? Right? To whatever credit we give to someone else is a discredit to the Father and the Son. We say, well, yeah, the Father and the Son, and then there's someone else. Only they paid the price. Whose honor involved, is involved in our character perfection? Is it a trinity? The very image of God is to be produced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. The honor of God and the honor of Christ. Okay, someone will be thinking, brother, okay, have mercy, enough, we got it, it's clear. I hope it's clear, I really hope it's clear. Because, you know, maybe it's clear to you, maybe someone watching this might not be clear to them. Maybe this will help provide them with a weight of evidence to maybe examine why they believe what they believe. This is the purpose of why we're sharing these things, brothers and sisters, because time is running out. God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. The 144,000 are true worshipers. They have the Father's name written in their forehead. This is, this is now. This is not some future event that's still going to happen in a few years. This is now. The signs of the times are happening right now. And at this very time, Satan has succeeded in getting the majority of God's people confused over who we worship. And it's very, very sad. Will the plan of salvation justify a trinity? The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe, it would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan, patriarchs and prophets. So these are, these are standard books a lot of people have access to and, and can read. But if we just look at one particular aspect, we find, wow, this is more common than we thought. Down to the very end, does Satan want to dethrone a trinity? Obviously not, but we're told that. He, Satan, points to the powerful race who lived before the flood and to kings and warriors who are well-skilled in battle and flatters his subjects that their numbers are much greater than those in the city. What time period is this? This is after the thousand years. After the second resurrection, all the wicked are there and they're surrounding the city and that they can make war with them and dethrone God and his son, Jesus Christ, and take the throne and occupy the city and enjoy its richness and glory. Riches, oh, richness, sorry. And glory. So the same from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Nothing's changed. Same enemy. Will we worship a trinity every Sabbath in heaven? Obviously not. But we're told. There they will assemble in the sanctuary from Sabbath to Sabbath, from one new moon to another, to unite in loftiest strains of songs, of song in praise and thanksgiving to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. God and the Lamb. That's who we will worship in heaven. So we should worship them here on earth. Same worship. Not someone else. What about praise? Will we praise the Trinity in heaven? We're, we're pretty much at the end, so 
I like this statement because it says, in your hands will be placed a golden harp. Does anyone play the harp here? Anyone is a harp? Brother Mac, he has a, anyone else? Okay, all of you are going to be in the harp choir, training. In every hand is going to be placed a golden harp. And touching his strings, you will join with the redeemed host in filling all heaven with songs of praise to God and his son. Hallelujah. We won't worship a trinity in heaven. God and his son on those harps. So if you want to play that harp, you need to be worshiping the father and the son. And, and this is my invitation to you, to anyone who's watching this, to anyone who doesn't believe this. I invite you to come and worship the Father and the Son in spirit and in truth. That's who will be worshipped for all eternity, not a trinity. And while that takes place, this is our last statement. And this is a beautiful one to conclude with. The years will move on in gladness. Over the scene, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. While God and Christ will unite in proclaiming. There shall be no more sin, neither shall there be any more death. Amen. From the beginning to the end, and when sin is finally put down, it will be the Father and the Son who will make that proclamation, who will make that declaration. And, uh, and then we will sing the next verse in the song with the harps, to the Father and to the Son. And so... In light of what we found tonight, we don't see this teaching supported by Jesus, whether through the scriptures or through his testimony, the spirit of prophecy, right? That there is one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. It does not exist. And so the question is, why do people still insist on believing in the Trinity? I don't know. I don't know when there is so much evidence. I really don't know. It puzzles me. I'm sure it's puzzled you. And this is why we're sharing some of these things. Maybe they don't know this. Maybe they don't see this. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't see it. The evidence, brothers and sisters, is overwhelming. Extremely overwhelming. Let us look at what everything that has been given to us inspiration. So the weight of evidence is of great significance. And so this is my invitation to you. If you don't believe this, if you don't know this, I invite you to study, to examine it for yourself, to see the weight of evidence, and to join us in fellowship with the Father and with His Son. That fellowship is obviously through the Spirit, but the Spirit is not another person besides them or anything like that. It is their very personal presence in our lives. So I appeal to you, I encourage you, and I invite you to come and see the evidence for yourselves. Study it, examine it, see where the truth lies because the time is very very late and our time is up so let's pray as we close together if you were blessed by this message remember to subscribe and share it with others we're available on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts your prayers and support are appreciated may god richly bless you through his son jesus